0: The following is a presentation of the Belly Up Sports Media Network. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, the 1958 NFL Championship, the New York Giants, the Baltimore Colts, and the story on how two franchises reached the game that put the NFL On the professional sports map. You're behind the Michael, Michael Neal Jr. All right, Tuesday night, all my papers are ready, got my notes, got everything, we're ready. Okay, let's go. Ah, NFL historians and lovers of sports history, welcome in. The show is for you guys and gals. And again, it's always cool if you know this stuff already, congrats to you. But there's someone else who does not. That's where I come in. This show is for those who don't know as much about NFL history. So we are here to enlighten, teach, and learn. It is the Behind the Mic Podcast. I am your host, Michael Neal Jr. The show is presented by Belly Up Sports and Belly Up Media belly up sports podcast network check us out on bellyupsports.com our home base of megaphone apple podcast spotify google podcast amazon music stitcher iheart radio and youtube so you know before we get to the rundown uh what were the storylines of this week <laughs> really he's <laughs> kind of one but quarterbacks backups starters didn't matter some were heroes and some came up Bad, there were zeros, I hate that. But a team that seems to feast on bottom feeders. So let's get to it. The Week 9 Rundown Thursday Night Football, Titans, Steelers. What a difference the offensive coordinator being on the field makes instead of being in the box. Face-to-face contact, you know, I'm telling you what you need to be seeing and I'm able to talk to you not just via phone or the headset and all that other crap, right? Pittsburgh looked a little bit better on offense but it was a game of penalties, 17 between both squads, 10 by Pittsburgh, and a lot of opportunities for the Titans to win that game. And although rookie quarterback Will Levis never threw a touchdown pass, I like it. He just looks different and more confident than any other quarterback on that roster. So I say, you know, go ahead, let him put mayonnaise in his coffee as long as he's productive. Now, as for the Pittsburgh Steelers, Kenny Pickett, on the other hand, he looks confident, kind of carries himself that way but he doesn't always play that way you know he's he's not uh connecting the way that he should with his receivers sometimes can be really erratic and inaccurate um but he did connect with Deontay Johnson who hadn't caught a touchdown pass since Ben Roethlisberger threw him one in Week 17 of 2021, and it proved to be the game winner. Steelers 20, Titans 16. Sunday, NFL Frankfurt games, first time ever over there in Germany. Dolphins, Chiefs. It was the Tyreek Hill get back game. You know, the one-time chief and has a ring uh, with Patrick Mahomes and them boys, but uh, they wouldn't sign him for more money, so he signed with the Dolphins instead. And I'll just keep it right there. But it didn't really work out the way that he planned, especially in the first half. Kansas City had the 21-0 halftime lead. He got stripped on a uh, screen pass by Trent McDuffie. It was recovered by Mike Edwards, and then it officially returned for a touchdown via lateral from Edwards to Brian Cook, who high-needed all the way to the end zone, the old 1-2-3. No, it's not baseball. But the second half was all Dolphins, well, at least the third quarter. They closed the gap to seven, scored 14 points, and it came down to a fourth down and 10 with a little more than a minute left to go. Bass snapped the tour, put a ball in the Chiefs, win. It was Bumbleuski, got on it, that was it. And the Dolphins, though, they really need to get it together. Has been talked, you know, for the last couple of weeks about how they play against these weaker teams versus the ones who actually are winning football games. And the proof is in the numbers. Teams under 500, they're 6-0. 39 points per game, nearly 500 yards of offense. But the teams <laughs> over 500, 0-3, 17 points per game. And what, 309 per game on offense? And what does that mean? They may make an early exit from the playoffs. They need to fix it or else. Chiefs 21, Dolphins 14, noon slate battle of the birds seahawks ravens as a team baltimore ran for 298 yards 138 of those came from undrafted rookie running back keaton mitchell whose daddy anthony played for the ravens back in 2000 i believe and he's from his son played at east carolina and uh, he never had an nfl carry before sunday i think he caught a pass that was about it and he made the most of the nine times he actually got the football obj scored on his birthday first touchdown since he was a ram in the super bowl been a minute seahawks geno smith the offense never showed up and it got a beat down only six first downs all day ravens 37 seahawks three cardinals browns look arizona is well on their way to the path of usc quarterback caleb williams if that's who they want and they might want to fix that uh offensive line first but josh dobbs gets traded and Kyler Murray, he's on delay. Ricky Clayton Toon got the start. Brown's defense buried him seven times. Picked him off twice, forced a fumble. And as for the Browns, you know, offensively, Deshaun Watson was back. Amari Cooper had to be happy. Watson throws two touchdowns. Cooper has 139 yards and scores with one of those. Kareem Hunt runs for a score. Dustin Hopkins kicks two field goals, and Arizona loses their sixth straight game. Brown's 27. Cardinals zip. And Buccaneers, Texans. I, look, I'll start here. I love ESPN College Game Day. I'm intrigued by Pat McAfee's kicking contest every week for cash, you know, for the big check. And I think uh, maybe only one person has made it all year. Kicking ain't easy, and kicking is important. Houston's Kyle Fairburn missed the second half due to an injury. And you got Dario Ogumuwale, their backup running back. I see him practicing kicking off. Well, you know, Texas were going for two before they officially allowed Ogumawale to try a field goal, which he made a 29-yarder. And CJ Stroud, he was the story of the game, really. 470 yards passing and five touchdowns. The 470 was a record, NFL record for a rookie, and the five TDs were tying a rookie record. Baker Mayfield and the Buccaneers drive 61 yards in 10 plays. Kay Darden, he catches a touchdown for Mayfield thinking okay this is this should seal it up 37 to 33 lead right well stroud takes six plays to go 75 yards game-winning touchdown the to fellow rookie Tank Dell, 15 yards that was it and uh texas win 39 bucks 37. Bears, saints chicago rookie quarterback tyson Bagent got his second start playing in his third game he throws for 220 runs for 70 even tossed two touchdowns but turn the football over four times three of those in the fourth quarter can't do it saints they're okay on sunday Seemed like they kept the bears in the game a majority uh, of the time but honestly just enough to beat the bears that's how good they played. just good enough and after picking beijing off three times it was the bears fifth and final turnover a strip sack by linebacker demario davis for the saints that ended the game bears go down again saints 24 bears 17. vikings falcons Josh Dobbs hadn't taken a snap, didn't throw a pass for the Vikings in practice. He barely knew anybody's names. He was traded, ended up, you know, from the Cardinals to the Vikings. He shows up on Tuesday. Rookie Jaron Hall gets his first NFL start in place of Kirk Cousins. We know he's gone because of the, the Achilles injury. Knocked out in the first quarter. I believe on the first drive with a concussion near the goal line. He got his bell rung. But hello, Josh Dobbs, Dobbs. All he does is throw two touchdowns, runs for another, actually leads the Vikings in rushing with 66 yards, and he throws a game-winning touchdown with 22 seconds left to Brandon Powell. Atlanta wasn't terrible, and I thought the Vikings were going to be in trouble, especially when Dobbs got sacked for that safety, and then he fumbles three times. But look, Taylor Heineke, he has what the 60-yard screen. This play was surprising to me. Yeah, it's just a screen pass, but Jono Smith, Go 60 yards for a touchdown. I never saw him run that fast in Tennessee with the Titans here in Nashville. Never. But the Falcons they rolled Tyler Algier to a probable game-winning touchdown drive. But Dobbs got him. Vikings 31, Falcons 30, uh Excuse me, 28. Rams Packers. Honestly, not exciting. Backup quarterback in Brett Whippin. Another backup uh, secondary. You know, uh, with the Packers no result douglas he got shipped off and add to that a packers offense that can be very frustrating to watch put that in the bowl and that's what you watched on sunday and this thing about the packers uh probably the best thing about them was that they finally scored in the first half thanks to aaron jones they had been outscored 73 to 9 over a five game stretch not great jordan love he has a touchdown pass Luke Musgrave catches it for his first in, in his career and that was about it Rams head coach Sean McVay he's got some work to do man Packers 20 Rams 3 Commanders Patriots according to the AP on ESPN.com the Patriots are now 2-7 and seven in their first for the first time rather <laughs> since Bill Belichick became head coach back in 2000 and they are the only team currently without a win outside their division that's bad Sam Howell throws for 300 again Uh, The Patriots, short on receivers this week. Mac Jones only had, well, he didn't have Devontae Parker. uh, Didn't have Kendrick Bourne, a concussion and then Bourne, ACL blown last week. Juju Smith Schuster, Hunter Henry, Mike Gasecki, Jalen Rager, Ramondre Stevenson. Stevenson did something on Sunday, but somebody had to step up. And if you watch the game, the Patriots had the entire fourth quarter to either tie this game or at least take the lead. Instead, Three punts, a Washington interception of Jones, ended it all. Commanders 20, Patriots 17. Afternoon slate, Colts, Panthers. I was really ready to say, you know, how proud I was of how Frank's Wright, Frank Wright's Panthers did against his former team that excused him from the Indianapolis table last year. Uh, but, um, you know, look, that's I mean, that's just what it was, right? And he relinquishes play calling duties. And the offense looked a little bit better last week against Houston but that wasn't the case this week Indy's offense wasn't impressive either but when your D spots you 14 points it helps and Kenny Moore made sure of that the Colts cornerback that showed out in front of his six yes six sisters that were at the game he had two pick sixes pretty good Bryce Young threw three interceptions and two of them uh, you put your team in a hole Colts 27 panthers 13 giants raiders brand brian dayball's offense coming at a a minus nine yard passing day right the raiders first game without josh mcdaniels and gm dave ziegler and their offensive coordinator which i mean i didn't even know his name because mcdaniels looked like he was calling the plays anyway but they were fired midnight last wednesday former giants linebacker antonio pierce is now the interim head coach thanks to both field yates with a nice little back and forth of uh, information on Twitter, or X, I still like the word Twitter. I can't call it X, I'm sorry. Field um, Yates and Adam Schefter, these are the numbers of importance. Schefter, the Raiders have scored 21 points or fewer, rushed for fewer than 100 yards, and recorded at least one turnover every game this season. Field Yates, after Sunday's game, the Raiders scored 30 points, rushed for a buck 25, zero turnovers. And Adam Schefter simply replies, interim power yeah good job and uh you know the Giants they lost Daniel Jones again untouched knee injury uh Tommy DeVito comes in they help the Giants to at least have more than minus nine yards passing he throws for a buck 75 and a touchdown but he had two picks Saquon 90 yards rushing didn't matter just not enough the Raiders players after the game had cigars lit in the locker room that was interesting Raiders 30, Giants 6. Cowboys-Eagles, I honestly came away impressed with Dallas. Even though I really thought that they was going to win the game at one point. Well they, and they had their chances. Prescott, another big day. 374 through the air. C.D. Lamb, another double-digit digit catching day, right? And he has, what, a book 91 receiving. Philly nearly hands the ball, to uh, hands the win to the Cowboys after taking the lead two fourth quarter uh heading into the fourth quarter that is is twenty-eight to 17 right Jalen Hurts he throws a couple touchdown passes to Devontae Smith and A.J. Brown not to mention him overcoming a knee injury and the Cowboys had their chances you know maybe that was another storyline of the week you know you had your chances and you couldn't take them and you couldn't take advantage of them they came up short of the Eagles' goal line. Not to mention Prescott stepping out of bounds on that potential two-point play would cut the game to a, what a three-point lead. Dallas had one more shot at the end. You know they go backwards offensively. You got a penalty, and then you know <laughs> you get sacked. Third, twenty-six. Prescott hits Lamb down at the Eagles' four-line, four-yard four line. He coughs it up, <coughs> and then that was it. That was the game. Eagles 28, Cowboys 23. Sunday Night Football, Bills, Bengals. That was a little frustrating for me to watch uh, as a fantasy football guy. I needed more from some of my players. But it, the, the story of the game, of course, we know about DeMar Hamley, what happened the last time that the Bills and Bengals got together in Cincinnati. Didn't end well, but then at the same time, it ended awesome. Great story after Hamlin was resuscitated. And uh, there we go, has yet to be active, to actually play in a game yet. Hopefully that happens eventually. But when the game started, it started fast. Cincinnati scores, Buffalo scores, and Cincinnati scores, and everybody settles down, there's a bunch of penalties and punts. Josh Allen, you know, interception, Yeah, the usual, right? And then, you know, Micah Hyde gets fooled there near the end of the half, and the Bengals have a 21-7 lead going into the half. And Josh Allen and the Buffalo offense never got a rhythm. And the defense, they seemed somewhat prepared, but not for tight end night for the Bengals. Uh, Their offense in Cincinnati, Joe Burrow, they were just fine, even though they left some points on the field. They really did, especially touchdowns. It wasn't just Jamar uh, Chase or T. Higgins, but it was Irv Smith, Drew Sample and Tanner Hudson, those three tight ends, 10 catches, 95 yards, and two touchdowns between all of them, and they helped Joe Burrow to another big passing day. Bengals 24, Bills 10. Monday Night Football, Chargers-Jets last night, that was frustrating to watch. I think Zach Wilson got sacked again. Recheck my window. And, uh, you know, that Jet's offensive line, they stink. And the Chargers' offensive line, they're not far behind, but at least they scored some points. LA scored some points. Sure, Justin Herbert, he was sacked five times himself. That defense Robert Salah has with the Jets they're good they just need some help on the other side of the ball you know Austin Eckler he runs for two touchdowns they get the big punt return to start it all and then Cameron Dicker he had six more points with two field goals the Jets everybody in the world knows why Robert Saleh is on the sideline like that with that look on his face he's frustrated you know the offensive line is terrible the quarterback has played a little bit better but you know. I, Every time you drop back, there's somebody right there in your nose hairs. You can't do it. And Dolphins um, <laughs> was just, they, it's just stunk. P.U. Eight penalties as a team, especially pre snap penalties. Troy Eggman said it last night. And then you have three turnovers, all fumbles, seven sacks given up. And honestly, I don't think Aaron Rodgers could have overcome that either. Chargers 27, Jets 6. Boo. Yeah. Coming up next, the 1958 NFL Championship game between the New York Giants and the Baltimore Colts, often called the greatest game ever, at least at that time. And the game put the NFL on the map, okay? Most historical NFL fans know this. But what was most interesting to me, not just the storylines of the game, of what happened during the game itself, these two things mainly. One, how the teams reached that level in the first place, And two, again, the storyline surrounding the game. I wrestled for a long time trying to figure out what I was going to talk about today. And and it didn't really hit me until Saturday. So like in a day and a half, I got all this stuff together and uh, all I had to do was, you know, other than watching all these NFL games and getting my notes for the rundown, was get this together, the 58 championship game. You know, I got all my notes, and, I mean, it was great. Uh, And I had to do my who, what, when, where, why, and how, what they call the the six W's, even though there's an H at the end. You had the Baltimore— Colts and the New York Giants in the championship game in 1958 while the NFL was building steam. It was held in the media capital of the world at Yankee Stadium, historic Yankee Stadium, not the new one now, of course. And it put the NFL on the pro sports map. And how it would happen? Television. And not just that, there was drama. That was the key. Drama. So I had to kind of go backwards and give you some something to to stand on. Okay. I mean, how did they get there in the first place? We know it was the 58 Colts and and the and all the Hall of Famers there and the, the, the 58 Giants and all the Hall of Famers there. And they were two years removed from two seasons removed from a championship themselves, the first one in a long time. How did they get there to in the first place? And you know why was it such you know a big big deal, especially it happening in New York? How did that happen? Well, I mean, first of all, you got to understand the origin, championship game origin, if you don't already know. If it's your first time listening to the show sometimes, and if it's not, you hear me repeat myself a lot because I want to make sure that people get these nuggets. Start right here. So there was no playoff or championship game for a long time, okay? Uh, It was always the team with the best record or the best winning percentage, and this happened from the league's inception in 1920 all the way to 1931. Now, 1932 was actually the first ever playoff game, the one that we always talk about, the Chicago Bears and the Portsmouth Spartans before they became the Detroit Lions, right? Well, you know, they had a tie for first place. And even though if you look at that pro football reference or in history, whatever you want to call it, yes, Green Bay had 10 wins that season, but they had three losses. And the Bears and Spartans both, sported even though they had some ties to go along with their record and yes there was an uneven amount of games played in that time period was because there were teams that would go away and teams that you know <laughs> that that were that stayed you know the course and didn't run out of money and didn't have to fold their tent and not have to be able to finish the season right so they were both six and one that's my point so you had two six and one teams and they played for that championship game Well, George Preston Marshall, and let me start here, actually. One of my books that I love uh, just as much as my NFL at 100, uh, America's Game, um, was this book written by John Eisenberg called The League. And it really concentrates on five pillars that I think without any of these guys, uh, the league would have either went away or still been struggling a little bit longer. But these five guys were really and you know some of these names, you should know all of them. They were the ones who really kept the league going and put it to where the point where it is today and got it started. Yeah, had George Hallis, Tim Mara, Art Rooney, George Preston Marshall, and Burt Bell. These guys either coached, some played, and then you also had owners, right? And so, uh, and and a commission that came out of this group, Burt Bell. Um, George Preston Marshall, for all of his faults. As far as you know, how he felt, uh, you know, about blacks, okay, uh, minorities, um, blacks. <laughs> but George Preston Marshall was an entertainment guy, and he was the one who actually pressed upon uh, the rest of the league the uh, the excitement that could happen when you get away from doing stuff the way that college football was always doing. College football was king, yes, but we don't have to do it that way. That's what he's saying pass the ball more, move the hash marks in, and let's also have a championship game and let's split this thing into two divisions. Remember, when the league first started, there were 21 teams, if I remember correctly. And by 1932, there were only eight. So they split it in half. They had an East and a West division, uh, you know, type thing. And the two best teams from each division would play to get, against each other in the championship. That was a marvelous idea. Now, enter Tim Mara, who bought into the NFL, the New York Giants, owner of the New York Giants in 1925. You know, he shows up and he says, hey, you want a team? Never watched football, you know, probably never even seen a football. He's like, yeah, sure, you know. And the guy, he just took off from there. And outside of his, I mean, his first coach led them to the championship in 1927. Just, what, three seasons in, they already had a championship. Um, and one of his players would he would hire as his head coach in 1931, Steve Owen. Steve Owen would be the head coach for the Giants for the next 24 years that's a long time and in that time eight championship game appearances and two championships. The last one that they had been in was in 1946 uh, which was a loss to the Chicago Bears during Hallis' 1940s Monsters of the Midway Dynasty. They lost 24-14 to 14 and uh, you know they hadn't had the same success that they had early on so uh and there was a reason for that okay they had three winning seasons leading up to 1953's uh losing season of three and nine okay owen uh and eisenberg talks about this in the book tim mara and his sons they recognized that steve owen the game had kind of passed him by he's still running uh, uh an aged old offense that was predictable. Uh, and the same thing with defense, he wasn't it being a, much of an innovator, right? And he's watching all these other teams. You got Paul Brown and, and all these other coaches that are doing some exciting things and newer things, and his team is kind of stuck in the 20s and 30s, right? By the 50s, you need to be opening things up a little bit more, and he was kind of losing touch with it, right? There are two factors really, maybe even three, that played a role in the Giants' turnaround. Well, one, they had to change the coach. And here's the other important factor. Remember that New York was home to the New York Yankees. They also had the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Baseball Giants. And these three teams being right there in New York City during a time where baseball is king, along with college football, And you have the Yankees that are in consecutive World Series. And sometimes they're playing, you know, another New York team in the World Series. So what do you think they're going to? So tickets, sales for the Giants were, you know, kind of in the tank for another reason other than baseball. Also, they were playing in a very old stadium. You had some of these stadiums they were playing in. And here's the thing. You got the Brooklyn Dodgers. uh, They were playing at Ebbets Field. And then, of course, the New York football giants and baseball giants were playing at the polo grounds. These were old stadiums that were falling apart. I believe they were built in the 1890s. It's like, look, y'all need to get us some new digs or we're out of here. That's what the, both the Dodgers and the baseball giants were saying. Or they're out of here. Now, Tamara was smart enough to leave the polo grounds and swallow his pride and go to Dan Topping, who I believe was the owner of the New York Yankees. Of course he was also the owner i believe of the new york football yankees too that played in the aafc the all america football conference and they kind of had a problem obviously you're in rival leagues he swallowed his pride and they ended up playing home games at yankee stadium all right water under the bridge well <laughs> the dodgers and giants baseball di- giants weren't as lucky that's the reason why they picked up and moved to california that's why you have the la dodgers and the san francisco giants because they got out of town well <laughs> that opens up things even though the yankees are still in town the new york giants just need to start playing better and then you got another professional sports team that fans could probably look upon and be like yes i love this right well they fired steve owen and they and steve owen didn't talk for the mayors for a long time because they were he, i played for you we're friends and you know i'm coaching i brought you champions well i mean we had to make a change and that change was jim lee howell jim lee howell was a guy that was thinking outside the box Now you know not only did he do something that was uh you know he made changes let's just say that let me make it simple and he was the first guy really to have an offensive and a defensive coordinator guess who they were offensive coordinator vince lombardi defensive coordinator tom landry and at the time landry was still playing all the way up until 1956 when he just became the full-time dc and you got these two guys calling your plays and letting and from what i've heard is that jim lee Howe believed in allowing players uh line coaches and do what you do all right i'll just be overseer right so they improve over the next couple of seasons uh from three and nine in 1953 they go in 54 75 55 they were six five and one and by '56, they were eight-three and one, and ended up winning the championship game in a pretty much a revenge game. Eleven seasons, ten years later, against the same team that beat them down and uh, that that they, that they lost to Chicago. They beat Hallis and the Bears 47 to seven at Yankee Stadium. And of course, the Giants are now recognizable, um, and they're one of the better teams in the league now, especially when you're champs. Uh, Tom Landry's four-three defense, which apparently was created to try to slow down Jim Brown, and apparently it worked <laughs> to, to some degree, because they had to get past the Browns in their division in order to reach the championship game, right? We didn't have to do it again. Um, but like I said, it, it happened for the Giants and got them back on top in those two ways. You had the, the baseball teams that moved and left, and then the fact that you got into a better stadium, uh, a, a stadium that's not falling apart, you're playing at Yankee Stadium, and that it helps it does help. Uh, And then with that, the Baltimore Colts, well, their story is a little bit different. Their origins come from the all america Football Conference, right? It wasn't the Baltimore Colts that you would think, you know, this is actually the second incarnation, which their roots all come from the Miami Seahawks, the first professional football franchise in Florida. Harry, uh, Harvey Hester, who was the owner at the time, Ran out of money, couldn't even pay the players. I've said this time and time again, and it ultimately led for that team to be relocated to Baltimore, Baltimore's first professional football team. By 1940, this happened in 1947, the league started in 46. 48 was their only team that at least reached 500. Other than that, the Colts stunk, okay? Uh, They made the playoffs. They were 7-7, lost the playoff game against Buffalo. They were a bad team. They really were. Y.E. Tittle was actually their quarterback for a while. (laughs) Yes, you know, the guy who eventually quarterbacked the New York Giants. But they were not very good. They just weren't, okay? They went away. Uh, The NFL, you know, they brought in three teams, the Cleveland Browns and the San Francisco 49ers, the Baltimore Colts, who wore green and white at the time. They lasted one season. They were out of there. By 1953, Burt Bell, who had coached the eventual new owner, Carol Rosenblum, back in the 20s, uh, Rosenblum had made a lot of money. He he was a big money guy. And he's like, hey, you know, how would you like, I would like you to be the next owner of this football team up there in Baltimore. And Rosenblum took it. He did, you know. And and it really was, uh, it wasn't the Colts, but they replaced the Colts via the Dallas Texans, the first incarnation of the Dallas Texans, not the ones who became the Chiefs in the AFL. They failed, and they went away, and now you got the new Baltimore Colts wearing that coat blue and white. Their first head coach, Keith Keith Molesworth, was fired after one season. Carol Rosenblum was very demanding, and he said, I want winners. Yes, like Mike Singletary said once, right? (laughs) I want winners. I want coaches that can win and players that know how to win. And so he fires him, and he's replaced by none other than, in 1954, Paul Brown disciple Weave Eubank, eventual Pro Football Hall of Famer. By 1955, the next year, well, the Pittsburgh Steelers, they gave a tryout to a guy um, who wasn't good enough to play at Notre Dame, even though that's where he really wanted to play, because he was too small. And although he was pretty productive at Louisville, still too small to be drafted, undrafted, Cut by Pittsburgh before he even threw a pass in a preseason game, right? Big mistake, Art Rooney. But anyway, by 1956, the Colts give him a tryout, uh, and he made the team. By 1957, he's making his first Pro Bowl. That was none other than Johnny Unitas. Uh, we have to do a show on him because, I mean, his story is is amazing. and I know there's even more to it than what I already know. So, But then you got both teams. By 1958, because the 57 Detroit Lions won it all, And then 1958, well, both teams uh, end up coming in. They're 9-3, and and they're going to be in this championship game in 1958, hosted at Yankee Stadium. Both teams, uh, you have to understand that their attendance had grown. Uh, These teams were a lot better in Baltimore as well as in New York than they had been in the past. Uh, Sellout crowds, especially at Memorial Stadium for the Colts, And the Giants were more recognized in the city. They were getting seats at restaurants that they couldn't get a a seat at at first. They're getting free beer, you know. You know, they're getting endorsements and stuff. You should seen should have seen Frank Gifford. You know, yeah. It was it was him and Charlie Connolly and all the rest. I mean, they were they were they were recognizable. Same thing was happening for the Colts, Uh, and it, it was great and they weren't they were still kind of second to baseball but really second to baseball not to the depths that they were no longer right in this game there would be 16 hall of famers to play baltimore now not all of these guys were hall of famers but you know they had great players as well as hall of famers yet johnny United, fullback alan amici lenny moore uh raymond berry gino marchetti arty donovan and jim parker for the giants you had charlie connerly at quarterback frank gifford um Who's, you know, who was Taysom Hill before Taysom Hill was Taysom Hill. Uh running, passing, and throwing for du- uh running, passing, uh, and and receiving double digit touchdowns. Right? So he was kind of that Swiss Army knife back then, Frank Gifford, Rosie Brown, Andy Rubistelli, Sam Huff, Elman Tone, and uh a little known receiver at the time by the name of Don Maynard. Get to him in a second. So NBC was going to be broadcasting this game 3pm at Yankee Stadium, but the game wasn't sold out. I'll come back to that in a minute. Good thing is that the NFL's average attendance was up. 1950, it is noted that it was at 25,356 people on average. By 1958, it was over 43,000 people. So it was more exciting. They were throwing the football a little bit more, unlimited substitutions, and then there's those bonnet hash marks were moved in. And if you're not Familiar, You know, you got the the, the the lines in the middle of the field. They used to be pretty wide, and that's where they foot, put the football. So when you move the, the hash marks in a little bit, it gives you a little bit more room to work, right? Things that college football was doing, things that George Preston Marshall and others were saying, look, we need to get away from doing that, okay? Um, but as Eisenberg noted in his book, The League, there was one other thing that was going to put this game over the top other than the others. They're going to have it on TV, yes. But the final ingredient was drama. Now, the game wasn't sold out, right? That's what I said earlier. Pat Summerall was talking to NFL Films about this game. The newspapers were on strike in the media capital of the world. The newspapers were on strike. You know, so here's the thing. So the, the tickets weren't, they weren't sold out. Because ticket holders knew about the game, season ticket holders. But the people that tune in for the Super Bowl just for the halftime show, like my wife, yeah, those people didn't just show up to the game, you know, just to eat popcorn and, and hot peanuts or whatever it was that they were serving at the time. So I mean, they didn't know about the game. There wasn't a whole lot of publicity. Carol Rosa Rosenblum knew about this, right? Colt fans flooded that stadium as well okay and from what I read numbers wise it was about 7,000 now from the way they talked there was more than just 7,000 people there but Carol Rosenblum said look I'll pay half of your bus fare your bus tickets if you want to go to this game if you're going to this game and that sold some of those uh tickets that were available and it worked it really did work isn't that crazy so you know it, it was really really interesting to see how all of that played out before the game had even been played i i didn't know a lot of this stuff so right now i'm going to present to you my version of the 1958 championship game rundown NYC, new york city again the media capital of the world december 28th 1958 45 degrees no wind historic yankee stadium it was a week seven rematch Where the New York Giants had beaten the Baltimore Colts earlier that season, 24 to 21. And Baltimore would return to Yankee Stadium to New York as three and a half point favorites. Now, I think that that may have had something to do with the fact that the Giants actually had to win four games in a row at the end of the season, including a playoff game rematch against the Cleveland Browns. They beat them 10 to nothing, avenging an earlier season loss. But All of this was happening while the Colts got to sit at home for two weeks. They were rested. That is to be noted. The Colts were rested. The Giants didn't get a week of rest. So both teams, again, 9-3 and records. They come in. And at the beginning of the game, for some reason, Jim Lee Howe did not start Charlie Connerly at quarterback. Instead, he went with his backup, Don Heinrich, who got to start. Didn't really work out too well, but at the end of the first quarter, the Giants that kicked the field goal, they led 3-0. But the Colts took a 14-3 halftime lead. And uh, just another note, Lenny Moore, I-, I don't think it really affected him that much, but he actually played with a, a bad back after pretty much the longest play of the game. A 60-yard bomb from the United The to that actually broke the game open in the first half. Furthermore, Frank Gifford fumbled three times. Their star running back, halfback. He admits uh, that although the Colts were a better team than the Giants, it's probably not much of a game if he does not turn the football over like that. Those fumbles led to points, period, point blank. Not to mention Rosie Brown, who was their giant, the Giants' best run stopper on the D-line, tried playing hurt, and he could not continue. The majority of the second half, though, was all Giants. In the third and fourth quarters, the GMSD kept the Colts out of the end zone. Right, right out of halftime, though, it got scarier for New York because the Colts drove all the way down to the goal line and they couldn't get in. And then two giant touchdowns later, the second, Frank Gifford scores on the touchdown reception, kind of redeems himself a little bit. They have a 17-14 lead in the fourth quarter. The Colts seemed kind of destined to lose, and it didn't help also they had another one of their best defensive linemen, Gino Marchetti, Hall of Famer to be, had broken his ankle. He made a tackle on what was described as a very controversial play. I didn't know anything about it. It was third and floor, third and four, third and floor, third and four, talking too fast. Frank Gifford thought he picked up a first down on a run, and some say, all right, well, the, the he said the, the referee apologized later, saying that he messed it up, and then there's others who look back at the tape years later, saying, well, he was inches short. Well, you know, and then, Uh, On that play again, Marchetti's leg got broken, Big Daddy Lipscomb falls on his leg, and so they're shorter defensive linemen. I think that's to be noted, right? Giants players as well as Vince Lombardi and Tom Landry wanted Jim Lee Howard to go for it on fourth down and short. They punted. He went with the safe bet, he punted. But here's the drama that the NFL needed. A championship game, a two-minute drill, nobody even mentioned what a two-minute drill was before this game. This would be engineered by Johnny U, who would be pretty much the best quarterback in NFL history once he retired. Raymond Berry, another future Hall of Famer, wide receiver, set a championship game record with 12 catches, had a buck 78 in the touchdown. He got three passes on that final drive for 60 yards, um, and it actually uh, it, it tied in the game that on that final drive. Steve Meyer kicks a 20-yard field goal. They couldn't cover him with a sheet raymond Berry, and they they talked about that in that nfl film special raymond berry just was, was always open um but after that field goal it would be the first time in history a championship game would go into sudden death overtime tied at 17 points apiece so for you young sparkies out there there was a time when and it hadn't been that long well you know, overtime meant the first team that scored. I don't care if it was a field goal or a touchdown. That was it. Nobody, you, you you kick a field goal now, and then the other team gets a chance, right? And then you score a touchdown on the first drive, well, the game is over. But there were too many games going back and forth. It was sudden death. That was it. You, you scored, that was it. All right, well, overtime, the Giants won the toss. They got first dibs. And remember that future Hall of Fame receiver I mentioned earlier, Don Maynard, before he was with the New York Giants or Jets, played with the Giants. He took the first ever overtime kickoff and fumbled it. Yeah, he fell on it, but it seemed like uh, it was just bad news for what was actually down the pike for New York. Giants got the ball three and out. Then it was Johnny United's time. The Colts picked up a first down and then another first down and then another first down. Again, they just could not cover Raymond Barry. Third and 15, he picks up another big one after, I think, two incompletions. And then a pass, uh, the final one that Barry caught, got the Colts inside the 10-yard line, first and goal Baltimore. And then the millions of viewers watching it on the television saw snow. Yeah. When the TV goes out and you see the snow, I don't know if anybody young knows about that now. But the NBC broadcast had been knocked out. Now, Summerall describes it as people leaning on a wall and it was just too much for it. I don't know if there was a cable around it, but someone disconnected one of the television cables, and then you had the hero that was thought to be a drunk that ran out onto the field. that kind of delayed the game. Summerall says that a then-NBC employee and friend and colleague by the name of Lindsey Nelson says that it was an NBC business executive of some kind that ran out on the field he says that he was told hey look, get out there on the field just run out on the field and get arrested just run out on the field and delay the game do whatever you need to do so we can get this broadcast back on the air see how important that was I, I mean, I don't know if the story is true everything that I've read and the stuff that I've, I've seen that's what they point to if, if that's what you want to do whether it's true or not, it did work there was a long wait and then NBC got the game back on the air what Three plays later, they were already close. United th- decides to throw the football wide. He hits his tight end Was his name, Jim Mutchler. Got them to the one he almost scored, just steps out on the one. And then third down to goal, United gives the ball to Alan Amici for the one-yard touchdown, boom, bang, pow, ball game. Final score, Colts 23, Giants 17. Giants quarterback Charlie Connolly actually had the game's MVP sewed up and that was until the Colts came back and tied it. And then they automatically gave it to Johnny Unitas. That, I, mean, I wonder if they was going to switch it back. Charlie Conley's, uh wife said that uh, Johnny Unitas' wife was driving her car because they got a car to go along with that award. But in the aftermath, an estimated 40 to 45 million people watched that game on television. That meant a fifth the country's population the New York Giants players, Baltimore Colts play, players, again they got endorsement deals left and right already right so you know it. the floodgates opened even after that and they talked about it Yeah, had guys that were opening restaurants, they got broadcasting jobs, just ask Cal Rote Pat Summerall and Frank Gifford of the New York Giants, they went in the broadcast right? right, before I knew that uh, Summerall and Gifford were, were football players I knew them as broadcasters first so and in the fans eyes as well as television executives this was the game again that put the nfl on the sports map and according to arthur randy o williams and i'm going to quote it would be a springboard in replacing minuscule local television deals with national tv contracts worth billions of dollars and a network all their own end quote the two teams would go ahead and meet the next year as well in the 1959 NFL championship game, which Baltimore repeated as champs at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. Two of those pillars uh, would miss miss it, unfortunately. Tim Mara and Commissioner Burt Bell, they actually passed away in February and October respectively. And I believe both of them were from heart attacks. I think Mara suffered, he was sick and he had suffered a heart attack, but he was sick. And then Burt Bell was at a football game you remember he used to own the philadelphia eagles he died at the eagles game after a touchdown he celebrated he was warned hey you need to not probably not show up to games anymore and he just couldn't do it and he said he would rather die on the field and that's exactly what he did um former rams pr man pete rosell you know him uh he was elected commissioner going into the 1960 nfl season and he recognized and this is some notes from one of my earlier shows about a year and a half ago he recognized how television could grow the nfl owners um, uh, could grow the nfl and the owners were wor- more worried about the gate but the Roselle television thing was going to attract people to their venues and their stadiums and the key was that the tv will provide is on i'm a quote from my book america's game provide its own significant revenue stream by allowing the league to sell valuable broadcast rights and advertisements the revenue sharing plan and it helps small markets like green day uh to remain viable and of course the afl comes along in 1960 uh they get you know a five-year ten and a half million you know thing with uh, abc five years 36 million from nbc in 1964. That was great. Roselle negotiated the NFL's first TV contract, a two-year deal with CBS for the 62 and 63 seasons at $4.65 million per year, and which equaled $300,000 per team. Yeah, so, I mean, this game did put the NFL on the map, and it got everything started because they wanted to see more drama. They saw what they were missing, and I thought that this whole thing was really Just, I mean, I understand the television part, and that was great. But even more so, how the Giants and the Colts got there, I thought that was pretty interesting. You know, I I learned a lot during this show. (laughs) That's why I'm here, you know what I mean? That's it, references. Thanks to ESPN.com, Profootballreference.com, and also a couple books, The League, How Five Rivals Created the NFL and Launched a Sports Empire by John Eisenberg. America's Game, the NFL at 100, co-written Jerry Rice and Randy O. Williams. The League That Didn't Exist, a history of the All-America Football Conference, 1946 to 1949. Gary Webster is the author. Also, a couple of films, 75 Seasons, The Story of the NFL, and also NFL Films, the 1958 championship game. And finally, my eyes, ears, and brain. This has been the Behind the Mic Podcast. Again, I'm your host, Michael New Jr. The show is presented by Belly Up Sports and Belly Up Media. The Belly Up Sports Podcast Network Check us out on bellyofsports.com and our home base of Megaphone. It's where all our shows dwell, right? As well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Tell all your friends and family about this show, or I'll be forced to find your house. I'm out.